I pray now as we open up your word that you would come and have your way. Speak right to our heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's welcome up Pastor Mike. We're starting a, uh, a drive together, a, sort of a, I would say a push towards Easter together. We have found over the years that if we as a church, if, if you as an individual join with us as the church, and we say, Lord, we want a breakthrough as we seek your face together now till Easter Sunday. And uh, we will focus on Sunday mornings, we'll focus on strategic events in Jesus' life, strategic teachings that he has, but everything is moving us towards uh, Holy Week, the Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. And uh, we have found that if we get on page together, we can really see some breakthroughs. See some breakthroughs in terms of maybe physical healings, breakthroughs in relationships, breakthroughs financially. Uh, because God, God loves it when His children get intense and start really pursuing Him. So we're going to do this together. Today, uh, the strategic event in Jesus' life that we're looking at is the temptation when He was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Before we read this text together, this is Matthew's account of the temptation of Jesus. And before we read it together, I'd like you, I'd like you to think with me for a minute about the biblical idea of temptation. Temptation begins with an external force. Okay, there's an external force, and that force in some way could deal with pleasure, it could deal with comfort, it could deal with pain, it could deal with suffering. But it's an external pressure that's trying to find a weak spot, trying to find a place of, of uh, brokenness, a place of bitterness, a place of mistrust or distrust. So this external force, whether it's, it's uh, a force towards your lust or it's a force towards your you know, your, your fear about your finances or your, your, your sense of powerlessness or whatever it might be, is, is trying to find that weak spot. And then having found the weak spot, a behavior manifests in you, a behavior that you're ashamed of, a behavior that betrays you, uh, a behavior that causes consequences. So the Lord Jesus Christ has been tempted in every way just as you. And this narrative shows the level of temptation that he faced. Face to face with the tempter himself. The tempter trying to use an external force to find a weak spot in Jesus. Let's read this together. I like it when you read out loud, so let's read this narrative together. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. 
When I was a kid, uh, our, the pastor I grew up under, he's always, he always turned his sermon into what's called alliteration. So every point always had the same first letter. So today, in his honor, I thought I would do that. <laughs> so the letter's M, just in case you like Sesame Street, the letter M. Uh, so we're going to look at the meaning of Jesus' temptation. Then we're going to look at how you cannot get to maturity without going through temptation. And then we're going to look at the malice of the, of the attack strategy of the enemy. Now that was pretty good, those three. All right, I like those three. So outside of the crucifixion itself, there's, uh, there's only one other story. It's the baptism of Jesus that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. So the baptism is an essential, it's a really essential um, uh, strategic moment in, in the, the life and the, the ministry of Jesus. The baptism, if you'll remember, is one of these awe-inspiring kind of moments where the Father thunders from heaven and He speaks approval and He speaks acceptance to Jesus and He says, this is my beloved Son. I mean, no, none of us as sons or daughters, there's nothing more beautiful than if you love your Father, if you respect your Father, if you believe in your Father, there's nothing more precious than to hear from your Father, this is my beloved child. That's what He hears. And then, you know, not having begun His public ministry yet, and, and yet the Father says, in whom I am well pleased. What a moment. What what a, 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 just in human terms, nothing could have been better than this. What an awesome moment. And yet, the passage tells us, then. And the then here is immediately following this spiritual moment comes the temptation of Jesus. And if you, if you look at the text carefully, you'll realize the then is almost like a Therefore. That in some ways, there is no way that you can get to the place where you begin to hear and believe and understand that you are unconditionally loved. Believe that you're accepted by God. And you have this sense of sonship and daughtership. There's no way that the devil's going to let that go. That it's in those moments, in, a, in, in those moments that you're going to be tested. In those moments, your position is going to be protested. And it's in those moments that your acceptance is going to be contested. The then is really a therefore. If you're going to go deep with God, if you're going to believe and trust in His unconditional love, then the enemy is going to put an external pressure on you that's going to try to find a weak spot so that he can destroy your assurance. So we have to look and say, this happened to the Son of God Himself. Well, I want to talk about not just the specifics. There are three different temptations that take place, and you could spend the whole message on those three temptations. But I want to talk more about the meaning of the narrative as a whole. The first is that you need to understand that in that moment of Jesus' baptism, he, 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 he comes to the place where the Father the Holy, with the Holy Spirit reveals a double identification. The first of these identifications is that Jesus is the Son of God. This is my beloved Son. But the second one is really why there is this temptation. And the second one is that Jesus is the second chance. Jesus is the second Adam. You see, Adam faced a similar test. If you remember... Adam was given the run of the garden. He was given dominion over the garden. He was given an awesome job of even naming the animals. He had a, a fabulous boss. And yet, Adam failed. The one prohibition given to him was the one he could not keep. And people sometimes will say to me, they're like, why does God, why did God punish us through Adam? And, and I don't have a perfect answer for that. Although, in the Bible, everything is, you're united to everyone who came before you in some way. But I, I always give a more practical answer. What happens to you when someone tells you, you can't do something? 
What happens to you when someone says, you can't have that? What happens to you when someone says, you can't go there? That becomes the only thing interesting to you. When I was a little kid, my grandma had this living room that had all these glass figurines and stuff. And she said, you can't go in there. My brother and I sat at the door. It was the only interesting room in her house. So in some ways, you have his DNA. That if someone says you can't, you will. If someone says don't, you're going to. It's just something in us. <laughs> Some of you, the way people get you to do things is to tell you you can't. <laughs> but here we needed a champion, friends. We needed someone who would stand up for us. We needed someone who would defeat the enemy. Who would defeat the, him on the same terms that Adam had. Now, if you notice the story... It wasn't exactly like Adam either. He had gone 40 days without eating. So in his human nature, in his humanity, he was at his physically weakest point. Which I think you have to begin to understand. The enemy of your soul loves to catch you when you're weak. He loves to exert pressure on you when you are not strong. And so he comes at Jesus 40 days hungry and he tempts him now if you've ever wondered why is it such a huge temptation to turn stones into bread let me let me give you some reasons for that this second identification he's the son of God he is a hundred percent deity he's fully God but the second identification is that he's fully man he's a hundred percent and in order for him to be the sacrifice that we need on the cross, He has to be pure. He has to be holy. He has to be perfect. Not in His deity, but in His humanity. You see, Jesus at the baptism became a Spirit-filled man. He, his, his humanity was baptized by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why in John 14, he says to you and me, the things I do, Jesus said, these are the things you will do, and even greater things than these, because I go to the Father. He's saying the things that he did as a Spirit-filled man are the things that he's inviting you into as a Spirit-filled man or woman. And He's inviting you to do the things that He does. Well, when you're Spirit-filled and you're a man and you're Spirit-filled and you're a woman, you cannot turn stones into bread. He would, he would have to deny His humanity, step out of the test, step out of the trial, and become God to turn a stone into bread. At that moment, he would have failed the test. Because it is not God taking the test. It's the second Adam taking the test. We needed a representative. We needed a substitute. You see, this narrative is essential because if Jesus doesn't win here, then the cross has no meaning. But the cross has meaning because Jesus did win here. Jesus did overcome. The devil couldn't find a weak spot. He couldn't find a spot that had any distrust of the Father. He couldn't find a place that he could get leverage. Praise be to Jesus. <laughs> Let me give you another aspect of this. Are you tracking with me on this? This is just the beginning of us realizing if He put you in that spot, you would fail. Not 40 days, but maybe 40 minutes. Some of you are so hungry right now, you can't even listen. That's why we give bagels out. How many of you can hold your breath underwater for four minutes? 
don't see a lot of hands. If you could take this example of what goes on here with Jesus and think, okay, as soon as I go into the water and the pressure of the water and the thought of not being able to breathe, it doesn't take long till I'm gasping for breath and I'm coming up. I never really experience the full agony or the full pressure or anything else of the water because I give up so quickly. The picture here is the Lord Jesus held his breath the entire time. That he extended to the height of human capabilities. And that he resisted even to the utmost all the external pressure of the enemy. So if anyone has ever said to you, or if you've ever thought, Jesus doesn't understand my temptations, that's the stupidest thing you've ever heard. Because he knows the depths of temptation. He knows the extremities of the pressure of temptation. The difference was temptation did not have anything on him. So much so that when Jesus went into the grave, Death had nothing on him either. It could not hold him. And there is an ancient magic in the creation, and that is if death cannot hold you, you come back to life. And this is the beginning, in a sense, of us seeing that our Savior is our pioneer, that our Savior is the author of our faith, our Savior is our champion. That what he did made a way that no one else could make a way. So instead of you being that kind of person that's always saying, I'm such a failure in temptation, or saying, I always fall in temptation, take your eyes off yourself altogether. And when the enemy comes and accuses and says, you can't even hold your breath for 20 seconds, you said, I can't, but I know one who can. And instead of showing... Satan, your record. Show him the record of the undefeated one. Show him the record of the champion of all champions. Everything changes when you stop trusting in your record and you begin to put forth the record of the undefeated one. Satan knows his name. And he knows how he lost. This this event is so important that we get this. Because every day there is some kind of assignment against you to tempt you. And there is incredible knowledge of your past. And there is incredible knowledge of your family's past. And so when the enemy comes and he gives that pressure, he knows there is a weak spot in you. He knows there are places where you don't trust. He knows there's places where you, you've broken fellowship with God. He knows there are places where you question God. But until you say, but wait a minute. The one who took the test for me had no weak spots. The one who took the test for me endured faithfully to the end. Show him Jesus. You want to know how to make the enemy stop taunting you? Start praising Jesus. Take his accusations and make them a worship service. Because everything he has to say about you is usually true. But it's also under the blood. And it's under the lordship of Jesus. And it all becomes a matter of praise. He stops accusing when you start praising. You don't have to say, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that bad. You Those are worthless words. But when you say, Jesus took the test. I remember one time, just falling into something that was disappointing for me. I just gave in to a temptation. And I remember hearing a sense of laughter. Taunting, saying, see, you'll never get it. You'll never win. And something in me rose up. It was like a spiritual backbone came forth. And the words came out of my mouth. You're right. I will never win. But I don't have to. Someone has already won for me. He's already made the A. 
And my life is in Him and His life is in me. Everything that's good about me is from Him and everything that's bad about me was nailed to the cross. And a backbone came up and I stopped listening to the accusations and the taunts and I took away one of His biggest, one of his biggest weapons and that is accusation. A lot of times the reason temptation works so well is because first we give in to accusation. See, once you go, well, I'm just a sinner, I might as well do this, then the temptation becomes easy to fall for. But if you resist the accusation, then you'll start finding the temptation doesn't have as much power either. Here's the way that Jesus dealt with it. He said, I'm being led into the wilderness to reveal who I am. It's, it, it's so fascinating because... Because Jesus didn't lead himself and Satan didn't meet him. The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. This is, what, this is why it's so important that you understand. You will not get to maturity without having faced the wilderness. You will not get to maturity until you've stood up to the temptation. Now, I believe in fellowship. I believe in communion and community. I believe in all of those things. And in some ways, they can help you avoid certain temptations. But at some point, if you're tempted in a place, you've got to face it. And you've got to defeat it. And so the, the one who loves you is not going to continually avoid the place of temptation. But even because he loves you, he will lead you to it. It's one of the hardest things as a parent sometimes. We see that our children cannot mature unless they face challenges. And yet at the same time as a parent, you want them to not have to face those challenges. I remember when my daughter, my daughter was young, maybe three, four years old, and she was the cutest little thing. I mean, and she could make anybody feel better just by her presence. My, my father was kind of a grumpy old man. And, and my, but my daughter would come up and he'd have a sport coat on or whatever it is. And she'd look at him and say, Paul, Paul, you look fabulous. And it would melt all the grump away, you know. And, and you just see, oh, much coming from grandpa, you know, and stuff. And so I watched and as a father, you know that at some point the world's going to get her. Because the sweeter you are and the tenderer you are and the more encouraging you are, it seems like the world just wants to crush that out of you. So she's about four years old, five years old, and I saw it happen. There were a group of like three or four girls. She wanted to play with them. The oldest of the girls said something mean to Anna and told her she couldn't play with them. She wasn't big enough, old enough, whatever it was. And it was just crushing to my daughter. She experienced rejection. Well, we've never heard from that girl again, but uh, just kidding. This isn't confession. But I remember watching my sweet little daughter, tender daughter, and yet she'd never get mature if she was protected her whole life from the fact that there is rejection, from the fact that there are people who reject you just because you're sweet. You know, all of these things. And, and in some ways, the only one who really knows how to mature you is the Holy Spirit. There's no one else who knows the end of your life from the beginning. Let me, let me read something that was helpful to me in this. This passage blows up a typical limiting assumption we carry on our spiritual journey. If I did my part better... What if I lived this good life and obeyed God and prayed every day, asking Him to protect me from all suffering and all difficulty? The answer is fine, okay, go there. But what if you, what if you actually could overcome all of your faults and all of your flaws? What if you could become perfectly wise and understand God's ways, the human heart and the times and the seasons such that you always made wise decisions? What if you could have faith in God without wavering? What if your life were perfectly pleasing to God? Then surely God would protect you and your own holiness and wisdom would guard you as well. And your life would always go well, right? Wrong. I'll tell you why I had us read that together. It's because many of you believe that. So you're so disappointed when it doesn't go your way. 
You try to work on, if I can just get every, if I can think through every worst case scenario, if I can cover every single thing, if I can make sure all the, you know, my ducks are in a row and my eyes are, my eyes are crossed and my T's are dotted, you know, and... <laughs> No one was ever perfect but Jesus. And He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. See, God's protection of you is different than you think. God's protection is not leverage against uncertainty. God's protection is His presence during the uncertainty. There are many things that will continually be uncertain if you follow Jesus. But there are many things in the midst of that uncertainty that are the certainties that you can hold on to. The problem is that when you think you can perform your way into perfection or perform your way into protection, then you have wasted your effort and you have not allowed the fact that the perfect Son of God was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. Now, let's push this a little bit. Stay with me on this. Because in many ways, you will not get mature without knowledge and understanding of the spiritual pattern. In many ways, the height of your spiritual moment, like the baptism of Jesus, will be followed by the wilderness. This is a pattern that shows up in terms of maturing the spiritual man or the spiritual woman. One thing that the temptation of Jesus demonstrates is the power, the complexity, and the intractability of evil in this world. And all around us, secular people see the world as made up of strictly material forces. So they don't see that there's any need to talk about the soul or the spirit. There are no demons or angels. Everything has a scientific explanation. One sociologist who's written a book about the death of Satan he says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the resources, the intellectual resources available for coping with evil. What he's saying basically is this, is that by making everything material and everything material ultimate, we now have no resources intellectually, spiritually, or emotionally to deal with the reality of supernatural evil. Now, here's what Tim Keller says that I found helpful. He says, deep down, we cling then to a simplistic idea that if we are good, life will go well. If you remember the book of Job, that's the whole of the teaching of the book of the friends of Job. Job, you're suffering because you, you didn't do right. Your kids died because you're a sinner. And then the, the opposite thought is, well, if I'm flourishing, if I have money, if I have a house, if I have good things in my life, it must be because I'm good. So it's this simplistic idea that if I'm good, then life will go well. Yet, if there are demonic forces, it stands to reason that true goodness and godliness would actually attract and stir up those powers to attack you. And that's just what we see here in the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. Here's what I'd like... I'd like you to think about with this. We're gonna, I'm going to push you to think this morning on this. Because, let me, let me explain why. Every single reaction you have to the circumstances of your life reveal your philosophy. Every reaction that you have to anything that goes on in your life reveal your theology. And what I've asked you and what I'm asking you today to have is a God-sized God. Not a God of your own imagination, but a God of, of His own revelation. He's a very awesome, complex God. Think of, I mean, there's nothing in my mind more beautiful than the baptism of Jesus. How complex God is in that moment. If any, there are many people who read the Bible and don't get that there's a trinity. And yet, in the baptism, you cannot avoid the trinity. The Father is speaking supernaturally from heaven. His voice is heard by all those who are there. And what is He saying? He's not saying this, this is a good man. He's saying this is My Son. Which is to say, He's God. 
And then it says, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descends like a dove from heaven upon the Son. So we have this complex revelation of God that He's three persons but just one God. I love having a complex God. I love having a God I didn't make up. I love having a God that's so big I can't understand Him unless He makes Himself understandable to me. And yet, what I find is I have a God who loves me so much that He wants me to understand Him. And so He sent His own Son for this reason. So this God who leads us into the wilderness at just the right times in our life, He's infinitely wise. He can see the end that He has in sight for you from the beginning. Our God never calls you from the past. He calls you from the future. A future is already real to Him before it's ever real to you. And He knows what good purposes He has hidden in the wilderness when you reach the other side. Are you... Are you, pe- are you people that are willing to go deep with God? If you are, then I'll tell you what's happening today. The Holy Spirit is extending His hand to you. And He's saying, will you let me lead you where you would not go on your own, but when you get there, you will know you were always meant to be there. There are ways that the Spirit leads that it feels like He's leading you into a cloud. You cannot see behind you, you cannot see in front of you, but all you can do is grab hold of his hand and say, where you lead me, I will follow. But you can only do that if in the secret place, in those weak places, you begin to say, I trust you. I trust you. I've seen what you've done in the past. I see who you are in Christ. And I will let you lead me where I've not been. Well, that's, that's important that you begin to realize it's the exact opposite of what's happening in our world. To believe that, that the desert has meaning, to believe that the wilderness has a purpose is really the opposite of what's going on around you. I don't know if you realize this or not, but you and I have been bombarded for 50 years with a philosophy that says everything's random. One of the best statements of this again I'm quoting Keller here he says it's interesting to observe that the modern secular culture regards evil in a rather fragmented incoherent way secularism is like ancient polytheism in that it sees the world as not created by a single all-powerful artist but sees the world as the product of violent and uncontrolled forces This is so powerful if you'll let it sink in. Many of your friends and family think they are nothing but an accident. That they are a product of a big bang. And so therefore, life itself really has no meaning except the meaning you put to it. But we sitting here and those sitting around you, we believe an artist created us. That He designed us. That even the wilderness is not random. That even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil because His rod and His staff, they comfort you. That even in the presence of your enemies, He prepares a table right in the presence of your enemies. He provides for you and provides in the presence of your enemies. And in front of them, He anoints your head with oil. It's not what others have said, this is all there is. As a matter of fact, this is only the beginning of what there is. But you and I are living in, in, in a time of most the most secular time that's ever existed. Not only is the physical universe itself the product of unending series of explosions and combustions, but we ourselves are only the products of evolution, of the survival of the fittest. If this account of the world is correct, then violence has no cure. It is the fabric of all reality. We got here through violent and purposeless means, and we will continue to exist and evolve in the same way. See, there, there has to come within you a rebellion against this. 
I am not the product of a big bang. I am the product of the love of God. I am a product of a God who loves me, who knows my future, who's even orchestrating right now things to give me a future and a hope that nobody else can cut off. I mean, to bring in, and it not be a cliche, but to bring in, because I trust Him and I love Him, I can say with all my heart, I know that in all things, God works together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. That nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If God is for me, who can be against me? This is, see, this is counterculture. This is rebellion against the random. But in order for me to rebel against the random, I have to submit to the designer. You cannot have a middle ground. Now, here's the malice of the enemy. Are you still with me? The malice of the enemy is always revealed in his attack strategy. And what, I, what I'm trying to get at with you is that temptation is not simplistic. For example, some of you, when you're tempt tempted to, to lose your temper, and you're tempted to say things you shouldn't say, and you go, ah, I held back, and you go, oh man, good, good on me. Okay, what you've done there is good on you because what you would have said could have created really some bad stuff. But you still lost. You still failed. Because just to restrain anger doesn't make you free from anger. Now, this is why Jesus is so annoying. is because He says, if you lust after a woman, and most of us are like, we're just glad we didn't do any more than that. And He says, if you lust after a woman, you've, cre you've already committed adultery in your heart. He says, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. So what he's saying is that temptation is, the malice of temptation is, is so deep in a sense that on the one hand you can be patting yourself on the back for not doing something and yet in doing so you've already revealed the weakness of your soul. And oftentimes what happens is when we have willpower and someone doesn't, we look very favorably on ourselves and very condemningly on them because they don't have it. Which then is sin in itself, because I've judged them, and I've made myself just on comparison. Are you, I know I'm asking you to think, but are you thinking with me on this? Am I talking too fast for a southern boy or something? Are you hearing me? See, in many ways, we have to begin to realize that what the Spirit is doing is He's not just trying to do behavior management. He's trying to heal the broken places. He's trying to heal the places where you don't trust God, where you, your faith is weak, where you believe that if it's to be, it's up to me. Those kind of places where you are independent, where you are not dependent on the grace of God. And so, the, so what the enemy does is he goes after the key place. And the key place is our identity. See, in their baptism... The Father said, this is my beloved Son. Satan says repeatedly to Jesus, if you are the Son of God. His first question is, did God really say that you're the Son? And so what he wants Jesus to do is he wants Jesus to make the Father prove that he is who he says he is. And he wants him to empower, Jesus to be empowered to do what he's been called to do, but apart from the Father. I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus' statement later, after the temptation, is he says, I do nothing of my own initiative. I only do what I see the Father doing. But the enemy of his soul was saying, did he really say? That's exactly what he said to the first Adam. And, and, and lest, you, lest you think in a way that you're immune to this, He's constantly saying this to you when things don't go your way. And you say to Him, Oh God, I would know You love me if I get this house. Oh God, if I get this job, if I get this job, then I would know that You really love me and I could trust You. See, what, he, what you're saying in that 
is you haven't proven yet that I'm a son. You haven't proven yet that I'm a daughter. I want you to prove that you love me. And as long as the enemy can keep you from a rock-solid commitment to your identity being in Christ and being from Christ, then he will constantly keep you on your toes trying to say, God, please prove your love to me. God, if you love me, this will happen. God, if you love me, this wouldn't have happened. And as long as there are questions there, there's an open door for the enemy to destroy you anywhere. He did this to the Son of God. He does it to you. And what happens is the Son of God stood up to him. And he, he, he exposed Satan's lies. And he exposed his own maturity. Because Jesus said, it's settled for me. I'm the Son of God. I'm a beloved Son. It's settled for me. I haven't done anything and my Father's already pleased with me. I haven't been to the cross yet. I haven't been raised from the dead. I haven't ascended into heaven. But I'm already believing right now that I am who He says I am. And I am what He says I am. Here's what changes everything, okay? Number one, I said to you, when you stop making it about your record, it changes everything. When you, instead of showing how you've gotten better because you're a Christian, you just show Christ. And that's your only defense. Everything changes when you do that. But even at a deeper level, even at the most precious of level, is when you get the assurance and you say, this is my assurance. That I died with Christ. That I am raised with Christ. That I am seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. That I was there with Christ as He defeated Satan in this temptation. This is what it means to be in Christ. Being in Christ isn't a time issue. Being in Christ means you're united with all that He is, with all that He's done. And when He says, you're my beloved Son, when the Father says that to Jesus, instead of just hearing it for Jesus, you're saying, He's saying that to me. It is an amazing thing when you realize, not on the basis of anything I've done, and not disqualified by anything I've done. But on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. When the Father thunders from heaven, this is my beloved Son. I can hear it just as clearly as Jesus heard it. And if you're a daughter, you say, He's saying to me, I'm His beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. It's an issue of faith, not behavior. And when that happens... The grace of God starts to transform those weak spots. And even when you fall, instead of saying, Oh God, I let you down again. Which is a useless regret. Instead you go, Oh God, you're revealing there's another place that needs to be healed. There's another spot where your love has not penetrated. There's another spot where I don't trust you. Will you come into that spot? Heal me. Make it new. Because I am your beloved daughter. Because I am your beloved son. Can you hear me today? See, you can go at it the other way. You can start saying, I'm going to do everything I can with all my willpower to be holy. And you will fail miserably. But you can try it. And we'll still be here doing it this way. And you can come back and say, okay, it didn't work. I didn't listen to you that day. I'm listening now. And we'll give you the recording. <laughs> or you can do it today. Will you stand with me? All right. Put your... <laughs> do a little vacation Bible school right now. All right? Put your hands up like this. And some of you have been arrested before, I can tell. <laughs> Okay, in your left hand, all right, in your left hand is your record. It's your record. When the accuser comes, what generally happens is we try to show him a cleaned up record. But he knows we're lying. 
Because he knows all that matters is not the cleaned up stuff, but the fact I'm showing him my record. See, the fact I show him my record shows he's got me. That I'm still trying to do it by works of righteousness of my own. Anytime you show him your record, he's got you. He doesn't have to tempt you anymore because you're under his power at that point. So what you have to do is you have to put your record down and you have to show him the record of Christ. And you see, if, you, you know, if you're right-handed or whichever is your dominant hand, put Christ in that hand. Because now you do look like a policeman. And you're saying what? Stop. You can't go any further. But now it's not on the basis of your life, but it's on the basis of the record of Christ. It's not your F that's stopping him, it's his A. Can you hear me this morning? And you see this table before you? This is his A. This is my body, he says, broken for you. He didn't do it for himself. Broken for you, so you can hold up your, his record, not your record. And this is, this is the cup of a new covenant. This, isn't a this is a covenant. This is a promise. This is something cut in blood. And what was the reason? For the forgiveness of your sins. So you could take your record and put it down. And you just pick up his record. This is making, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now. Some of you should be getting goosebumps. Because it's starting to make sense to you. I keep putting up my record. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. But I have another record. And the enemy can't stand this record. And why am I able to put this up? Because I'm his beloved son. Because when he died, I died with him. When he rose, I rose with him. And I, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so when he comes to me, he's coming after the old. He's tempting the old. Because he knows he's got no ground with the new. Put up that hand. Say, you're not coming any further. And then this, the old record, the Bible says, was nailed to the tree. And in many ways for me, the old record becomes the place of praise. Because I know I don't deserve this. But I have the assurance that because of Christ, because of the love of the Father, I said, this is mine. This is mine. Let's set apart this table. I love it that Jesus knows that we're people who need to taste something. And we're people who need to touch something. And feel it. And so he said, this is for us. But we're doing it in remembrance of Him. Lord, we set aside these elements now. We declare that it's just crackers, it's just juice, but it's special when we come together. You said, do this in remembrance of You. So we ask, Lord, as we consecrate these elements, that You'll do something extraordinary in us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll just take your seats. The elders are going to serve you. We have, what I'm going to ask you to do is, is to worship as you receive the elements. We're going to give you both elements. We're going to give you the, the bread and the juice. And uh, I'm going to ask you to hold on to them uh, until everyone is received. Now, this table is not the table of risen king. This is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus' table is for sinners. It's not for, the, not for the, the, those who are well, but for those who are sick. Not for those who are righteous, but for the unrighteous. We come to this table because we need Him. Not because we deserve Him or because we somehow merited or worked our way spiritually into a place where we deserve this table. He loves us and He gave Himself for us. And so we invite you, whether you're a member of Risen King or uh, part of another group, whatever it might be, but if you love the Lord Jesus and you're seeking the Lord Jesus today, then both these elements are for you. 
And I want you to hold on to them until you've re- everyone has received them and we'll take them together. Gabe's going to lead us in worship as we do this together.
mind standing with me, please? When I was uh, when I was reading uh, Tim Keller's thing on on that we're you know the secular view of us is that we're just random you know consequences of violent actions and immediately thought of my favorite TV show, which is Big Bang Theory. And, uh, and it's such a clever show, and yet it would not exist without a creator, without an author. And it's so funny because nothing exists without a creator, without an author. And yet many of our friends, many of our family members just believe they're nothing more than accidents. And maybe you've come here today and you think you're nothing more than an accident. But on this one day, in the Holy Land, in the river that has been special for so long, and I actually got to stand in the, the place, and maybe some of you too, the place where the Jordan meets Jordan meets Israel, and this amazing place that's now dry. Jesus was baptized there and, and, and many people had been baptized because John was baptizing all kinds of people but then the Son of God came to be baptized to fulfill all the law of God nobody knew that this was going to happen except the Father and the Father rends the heavens and He proclaims this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased and then the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus to fill his humanity, a spirit-filled humanity, so that he would carry out his ministry in his spirit-filled humanity. And what the Bible says, and I know this is supernatural, but we might as well go all the way. The Bible says that when you put your faith in Jesus, you were there. You were in Christ, Christ in you, you in Christ. And the words thundering from heaven today for you by faith is you are my beloved daughter. You're my beloved son. And you might be saying, but I don't deserve in whom I am well pleased. And here's why we can believe that. It's because here's the bread. Here's the cup. Here's the body that was broken in your place. Jesus was treated as you deserve so that now you can be treated as Jesus deserves. And this is the cup. And it wasn't for Jesus, this cup. It says, this is the blood of a covenant in my blood. It's cut in blood. But for what purpose? Forgiveness of sins. Would you eat it together and drink it together? say one more snide thing before I finish here. I hate these crackers. <laughs> and this is juice. Ugh. It's the smallest bit of juice you could ever get on the planet Earth almost. Why am I making... Because some of you came to believe that that was the body of Christ. And that that was the blood of Christ. This is a cracker and juice, friends. It doesn't transform. It is what it is. It's the promise around it that matters. This is my body. It's his real body that was... Jesus doesn't have to be re-crucified, friends. He was crucified once for all time. You don't, his, your forgiveness was accomplished on the cross. It was efficacious. It was effective. How do I know that? Because He rose from the dead. When He says you're forgiven, when He says you're a son, you're a daughter, you can trust it. And also, there are benefits. And healing is one of those benefits. Our elders are up here. Our prayer ministers will be up here. If there's physical needs, if there are any needs whatsoever, let's go after it with the Lord today. What I have found is the more mature in Christ you get, you start to realize how much you need Him. And how much He has already provided as you come in prayer.
God bless you. Thank you for being here today. We'll see you next week. Stop the Lord.